0: Welcome back to the DealMakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1 and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the dealmaker show. So today we have a founder that is going to really teach us a lot you know, about going from the engineering side to the business side, from founding to building to financing, scaling, and they're doing some really, really cool stuff. But I think that, again, we're going to be learning, too, about rejection, uh, fundraising, picking yourself back up, so you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Risto Borisov. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alessandro. How are you? Very well. So so why don't we do this? Why don't we do a little bit of a walk through memory lane? How was life growing up in Sofia, in Bulgaria?
1: I would say pretty interesting. Uh, the 90s, when I was growing up, were uh, very interesting times because obviously socialism ended uh, in 89 and the country was in this kind of uh, upbeat trajectory going up, but still it did not have the structure, so it was very wild, I would say. You know, getting into democracy after 40, 50 years, uh, it's not something that happens overnight. So I would say uh, it was pretty wild. So uh, as a kid, there were almost no limits. Uh, you can do everything. We were, you know, just for fun traveling on on the public transportation all day long, and uh, we really enjoyed the time. I, I, I'm, I, and also the other thing was. You know, one of the good things as growing up here was that in in the socialist time, everything was uh, there was actually zero crime. Uh, so in the 90s, still there was that notion that kids, you know, you can just let them go when they're six, seven years old out and they can be everywhere uh, uh, crossing the city all day long. And this is what we did. And right now, if I think about it, doing that to my kids, that's crazy.
0: Now, in your case, how do you you know start to develop that love toward computers?
1: Very early on. So I got my first computer in 1996, uh, which was a very old a private computer, which was the Bulgarian version <laughs> that we were producing here, 16-bit era. And after that, I always wanted to do more with those computers. And I, I learned some basic programming very early on. And then 2001, I got my first proper computer. And I was reading so much about computers before even I had one. Uh, So I knew every single part, and I was very passionate about, uh, you know, back then, the internet. One of the crazy things about Bulgaria is that we never got on this infrastructure of internet that was based on, uh, let's say, the uh, typical phone network with modems and uh, ADSL. We actually got directly on fiber. So 2002, 2003, we had fiber optics uh, everywhere. So we just, uh, when everybody was building their, internet infrastructure in the late 90s in the Western societies. We actually did not do anything. And then when we started building ours, it was already on the technology 2.0 directly on fiber optics. So we had crazy fast internet since uh, you know 2002, 2003, uh, which was amazing. And then when I went to the UK for uh, exchange uh, in a university there in 2009, I felt like 10 years back in time <laughs> because of the quality of the uh, internet there.
0: Now, in your case, when, when you finished your studies, you went at it as a software engineer. Uh, one of the companies where you really spent most of your time, you know, was uh, Telerik, right? So how do, you, how do you land on Telerik? I mean, it's basically there, you know, a very interesting uh, journey, too, because, you know, you, you were there for over 10 years, which is a really long time. Uh, and you get to experience several things. You got to experience an acquisition. You got to experience your incubation of your own company. So, how was that journey for you? Because ten years is a long time.
1: Yeah, it is a long time. But uh, um, you know, we were growing exponentially. So when I joined them uh, to, uh, late two thousand and seven, they were about seventy, eighty employees. And when we got acquired two thousand and fourteen, we were eight hundred and fifty. And one thing that, that was really interesting about this journey is that um, I joined them as, as an engineer, and uh, it was a company that was serving developers. So the average quality of an engineer was very high because we were building developer tools. We were building tools that other developers needed to build websites, mobile apps, and so on. And the quality was extremely high. And then 2010, we realized that uh, the company was about 200 people that you know, there needs to be a little bit more structure. And this is when, having graduated both business and computer science, um, I had the opportunity to become one of the first product managers in the company. And I started incubating all of our cloud and mobile products in 2011, uh, for uh, late 2011 to early 2012. And that allowed me, for me, to, to build a lot of products internally, uh, to compete with companies like Microsoft and. Uh, IBM and uh, um, you know Zamarin and whatnot on the market, which was a really, really good experience because uh you had to build a real strategy to be able to compete. You had to build a very solid product to outperform those companies. You had to have a very strategy because in general, you're the underdog going versus the big guys. What kept me in that company for 10 years was really the pace of innovation. So every uh, 6 to 12 months, I had a different job, meaning Even though I was, you know, building products, it was just a different scale. And by 2016, I had 12 product managers on my team and 180 engineers. Um, so doing that and doing this with, let's say three, four engineers and you being the PM is completely different world. And that kind of exponential growth during the years really helped me understand how to put a strong strategy in place, how to, you know, create a healthy environment how to really structure the engineering teams and the product teams to, to be really leveraging each other and to have this kind of a healthy pressure between them. Uh, and we, I always like to say that uh, for me, the holy grail of building product is uh, 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 you need the holy trinity, is you need a PM, uh, uh, you need an engineer, and then you need a UX guy uh, as a lead. And to me, these are the mini CEO, mini CTO, and the mini uh, uh, creative designer on the, on the team. Who are uh, chief creative designer, who are actually the, 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 the core. and then by having this kind of a uh, very strong relationship between those three people, um, everything is possible.
0: But I mean you were there for over 10 years and uh, it sounds like you know when you are for so long uh, under a bigger umbrella, to a certain degree you get comfortable working at, 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 at bigger corporations rather than thinking about the crazy thought of building your own business. So what really caused you to say, hey, I'm going to take a look at maybe take, you know, seeing this opportunity a little bit farther and then all the way to giving your notice and to leaving everything behind to start something of your own?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, Telerik was the, you know, the, 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 the flagship company of the country. So we always had this sense that we're building something together. The startup culture was very strong there. You know, we always had this kind of a motivation uh, that was well beyond just the money and the fame of building something that is really groundbreaking. Here, a community of 1.5 million developers um, and uh, everybody uh, on the uh, uh, you know developer community knew Telerik back then. Uh, it was extremely famous, but what happened was that by 2018, the company went through acquisition in 2014, and then I stayed for more years in the public company, and I was... Uh, allowed to do an internal startup 2017, an incubator product. And I was for, I, I was allowed to go and recruit people who were only leaving the company. Because obviously I couldn't recruit somebody that's uh, you know, already in the company. And what happened was that all those people were, you know, deciding to, uh, they, they they already were decided to, to leave. Uh, and I managed to convince them to stay. And those people with those people, we created uh, a company called uh, sorry, an internal product called Darwin AI, which was its code name, and then it became Native Chat, which is still existing. And with this product, we created a, um, a tool, obviously, for developers to create chatbots. But the innovation was that we actually did not allow developers to just go and build uh, decision trees to have a conversation. We created something which is called Cognitive Flow. So we can actually just define different types of conversations that the chatbot can have, and different types of structured data the bot can understand. And then you let the bot have the conversation on its own. Um, And that was very groundbreaking at the time. When we met with Gartner, Forrester, all of them said, in terms of technology, this is even way ahead of what Google and IBM were doing with Watson. So uh, I was seeing this kind of a very nice path on building something within the company. and, And then the CEO of the company, he was very aggressive about going purchasing companies, uh, and, and, and not being patient enough uh, to actually have real uh, innovation within the company. And this is when I decided that um, uh, I really don't want to be in that environment, and I would rather go and uh, do something on my own. And uh, this was exactly the time when my first daughter was born. So, um, and as soon as my daughter was born, I told my wife, every day my, our daughter grows up is a day that I'm straying away from my goal of building a company. And it was a funny conversation telling my wife, hey, I know you're in a, a maternity leave, you're not earning any money, and I'm going to go and build this startup. Most probably I will be without a salary for the next two years. Uh, but she knew that I cannot just stand still, right? I, I'm a person who needs to be, you know, building staff, uh, who loves how to, uh, you know, put together strategy and execute. And this is what defines me as a person. And, and uh, I said, "If if I don't cut all safety nets, I'll never do it. And if I just don't make it very hard and make failing not an option for me, because, I, I mean, I, we need to succeed here. Um, and the other thing that was key was that I knew that uh, we have a lot of experience. Uh, we already gained a lot of experience, and we knew that we have the confidence to go and build any product we want in our own way by going and interviewing customers, by interviewing uh, the customers of competitors, by understanding where these guys are weak, and putting together a very strong strategy on how to attack. And I knew that we can build anything. And the only thing we needed was to find a big market because I said, if I'm going to go and start a startup, uh, at least make it big, you know? Uh, And to make it big, you need to find a big market and solve a big problem. And if you do those two things, it's going to be a big company. And that was our strategy for day one. We started searching for this big market to, to identify a big problem in it. And the other thing that was important for us was to really uh, build something that's on the cross section of, of industries, not just software. We were fed up of just building software. We wanted this to be software with something, right? With uh, you know, healthcare, with financial services, with agriculture or whatever. Something that is at the intersection of two industries and when a new market is going to emerge and um, you know we literally started the company on day one with going to google and saying how to issue a car right uh, we are not coming from the financial services world but we we're learning fast we're moving fast and uh, you know this is how we started the company
0: and how did you go about putting together the founding team
1: i had you know boyko, he was part of my team at telerik and we were discussing a lot uh, he was, you know, willing to go and and do something and leave the company. And I said, hey, why why? I'm planning to leave as well. Why don't we build something? And and he said, you know, I think you're going to be the best CEO I can ask for. And I said, I think you're going to be the best CEO I can ask for, uh, because we had a very strong relationship at Telerik and we were able to build uh, some really cool stuff. Um, just the way we collaborate was a very strong fit. You know, back then he said, you know. I will be happy to join for as much as 20% in the business, and I said, "No, you need to have 50% of the business because I need a, need a true co-founder." Um, and this is how we started the company. From day one, we had a, a, a person helping us on the, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting together the model because we were targeting, fi- uh, uh, you know, CFOs, and we were not CFOs. And uh, one of my peers at Telerik was a, a very strong finance person, and Uh, Later on, after a year and a half, we got him as a late co-founder who joined the company. And from day one, it was important to have his opinion about, you know, what is the world of CFOs, right? So this is how we put together the team. And then what happened that the whole team we had at uh, Darwin AI uh, decided to join slowly the company. So pretty much we started with a very strong engineering team of people that have used to work together before. Uh, And that gave us the opportunity to, when we set to build our first version of our product, uh, we managed to do that in four months. And in four months, we had a company card out on the market already in the hands of customers on which we wanted to move fast and get feedback and improve on a daily basis.
0: Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the people that are listening, you know, to really understand the the business model of Payhawk, what's the, what's the model there? How do you guys make money?
1: So, first of all, when we started, there were already two, three companies out there that were building uh, automating company cards. Uh, expenses uh, with giving you a company card and then automating all the expense handling reconciliation for the finance team. Uh, So they were merging this world of expensive five plus cards that worked in a single solution. What I did is I, I used some of their websites to try to pitch them to customers and to understand what they think about their value proposition, where the value proposition breaks, if it's a bigger company, what they're concerned about, what they would need more. And I realized that Um, Just integrating company cards and expenses is just the first, first problem that needs to be solved. And if you think about it today, there is a big disconnect between software and finance because, uh, you know, banks only cared about giving you a company card for you, going and swiping a card as a business. And as soon as the post terminal uh, gets your payment, then the bank has done its job. But that's the point in time where the struggle for the business begins. What do I do with this expense? Who's going to extract data from the expense? Who's going to reconcile this expense? Was I allowed to spend those money? And we realized that this is just uh, uh, one spearhead in the problem, but uh, obviously managing all payments for a business is painful. Uh, managing accounts payable, managing uh, expenses for employees that don't have a company card, reimb- reimbursing employees with this expense is, is hard. And then we decided that instead of going and building uh, these things one by one, you're going to just go and combine four or five different Uh, uh, products that existed at the time. So people were buying one thing for data extraction, starting from cards, porting for accounts payable, uh, something else for workflow management and so on. And then the finance team is not the most tech savvy team. And the finance team was asked to go and use four or five systems to put together the structure of their operations. And we decided that this needs to be a single system. And we built this, all of this in one system. Obviously, we don't force you to use all of that. And the other thing we did uh, strategically very early on was that, um, you know, company, currently allows you to issue company cards, uh, um, manage accounts payable or employees, manage expenses for employees, do data extraction in 60 languages, reconcile all of this into your accounting software or ERP system automatically. And the other thing we did is we did we just didn't do it in one market; we did it in 30 countries, and that allowed us to get. Uh, uh, companies that had this problem multiple times, meaning that they had this kind of four or five system they had to choose, but some of those systems were country-specific. So you ended up, if you're a company that has uh, uh, 10 entities across Europe, you usually had 30 solutions across the board stitched together to run your operations, which was insane. And we really replaced and wiped out all those kind of uh, disconnected solutions into something that is really a powerful tool for the finance team to stay in control uh, and to really empower the employees and trust them uh, to manage um, uh, spend properly and uh, to really have this kind of a very nice collaboration platform. So our, our path has been always to shortcut uh, uh, really and, and make big leaps in terms of thinking and go way ahead of what everybody had as a trajectory. So how we make money today? Yeah. Uh, as a software company, we make money from uh, subscriptions uh, and we also make money from Interchange, the volume that goes through the cards. And that's why uh, we decided to offer 3% cashback uh, cap to your subscription amount uh, when you are uh, using Payhawk so that if you're spending through Payhawk, you can actually get the product free of charge. Uh, and that aligns very well with our interest and the customer interest. Because at the end of the day, if the customer is using the platform and making payments, We don't care about the SaaS revenue. We only care about the interchange, and this is how we can subsidize the product. And if the customer is not spending, it has a healthy pressure to start spending because otherwise it's going to be paying for the product subscription. So in terms of velocity right now, we have raised about $240 US million. We just closed our series B1 extension led by Lightspeed Ventures, which gave us a unicorn status. The company was valued at $1 And in terms of revenue, this is something that we don't share. But I can tell you that for the last 20 months, month-over-month uh, month growth has been, on average, 22% month-over-month. Month. Uh, so we have been scaling exponentially. And I think that is uh, something uh, you know, pretty impressive on our side, that uh, we have had this kind of very strong, steady growth. And very predictable growth in terms of you know, uh, interchange and in terms of dynamics on, on, on the revenue side. So that's high-level where we are.
0: Oh, I mean, there's a lot of money that you guys have raised, you know, especially being you know there in in Bulgaria. So, so how did you manage to get those investors, and and what was that fundraising journey like for you guys?
1: Well, it was uh, really really tough because we we initially got pre-seed money, half a million uh, euro that we raised in Bulgaria from angels, from the founders of Teleric, uh, from a VC fund here, and then early 2019. I went all across Europe uh, to, raise, to raise our seed round, and we were looking for 1.5 million seed round, which a lot of people in Western Europe were very concerned about, you know, how would we investing in these guys that are based in Bulgaria, you know, the only thing we have heard about Bulgarians and credit cards are how good are they, they are at stealing them, uh, which was kind of, uh, you know, the best, and at the end of the day, seed money is something that people would like to invest uh, as close as uh, they are, like, you know, within the five miles where you are. Uh, and we were very far from, 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 from those Western European investors. And back then, this was pre COVID time. So usually you had to meet all those investors in person. So I was flying all across Europe to meet them and I ended up having, you know, 62 rejections from 40 funds, uh, a lot of them rejected me several times. And that was really, really devastating because the only reason why they didn't invest was because there were a lot of uh, investors who, uh, there were three very prominent investors who already invested in compa- uh, in, in those existing companies that we saw early on. Um, and those companies were already three years old. Uh, and we were moving extremely fast and those people did not appreciate really the product innovation and the, the pace of our engineering uh to outpace because in the in the world of a VC the only thing a VC can give you most of the time is money and so naturally every problem they solve is with money and the the the, the companies that have most money can solve the, the most problems right that is the basic thinking so you if you go against the biggest funds out there and they have a lot more capital than you they're going to be the winner but one critical mistake those companies did was that uh you know our our spend management expense management market is not uh, a market where one winner takes it all because there is a lot of fermentation around countries currencies languages, accounting systems, accounting practices and a lot more so it's a lot more complicated than that, and nobody believed we could cut through the noise and that was kind of a pretty, pretty tough journey. We were 14 days away from running out of money before we closed three million seed round with Ribert.
0: And And in this case, I mean, what was that process of really building the trust with the, with the investors, getting them at ease and comfortable, you know, with having, you know, such a big chunk of the team there in Bulgaria? You know, how, how was that like?
1: Um, the only way you can gain trust with people is by actions. And this was it. We were just, what we were saying, we were delivering. And we were delivering above that. We were moving extremely fast. Uh, You know, we were um, innovating, um, you know, looking uh, on the market on its own way. Um, You know, I remember when we introduced the cashback, 3% cashback, uh, I I met with a guy, and he's a VC, uh, and we were discussing our Series B round, and he says, like, he said, like, if I was on the board of those competitors, I would be like, how did we miss that? Right? It was in front of us all this time. And, and that, was, that was something that we, we really focused on, really to, to prove to those companies we can move fast and, and we can stand behind our words. And I think this, you know, trustworthiness, because, you know, regardless of where, in, where whether you're in Bulgaria, London, uh, Kenya, uh, Brazil, or whatever, uh, it is all about who you are. Uh, What are your motivations? Why are you building this? What is kind of this kind of really big drive that you have, right? And the big drive we had in Bulgaria is really that we didn't have, you know, those that many tech companies at large scale. And I I don't understand why. And that's what I wanted to prove that we can do. And I'm sure right now that there are going to be a lot more companies coming because they, they saw it is possible. And I'm sure in the next, Two, three years, we are going to have at least five to ten unicorns coming out of the region based on our footpath and based on the, you know, open the doors we have opened so far. So I think earning trust is number one.
0: Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Payhawk is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: The world, the this world looks like that you can only, you can go to a single vendor. And that single vendor can can be your global provider for business payments in every country in the world. Um, so you don't have to go and search for a company that is issuing cards in Rwanda, in Zimbabwe, in uh, Uruguay. You can have one provider that can help you manage your business uh, and do business because making payments and paying is doing business, right? Uh, you cannot do business if you are not contracting, right? And this is a company that allows you to do that and also allows you to have a very harmonized enterprise software that allows you to manage these uh, businesses at scale so that you can make sure that you have a tool that really empowers and gives uh, the employees a way to do what they do their best. And the final team has all the controls and levers to manage everything in real time so that you don't have to wait for weeks or months to wait for your consolidated statements or reconciled statements. Uh, the business is about real-time decisions, and having these real-time decisions, having global footprint, and having extreme automation and intelligence to drive those uh, uh, business decisions and payments is something that we imagine Payoff is going to be.
0: Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, I bring you back in time to perhaps that moment where Risto was you know, thinking about leaving Telerik and uh, starting you know, something of his own, and you had the opportunity of speaking with that younger Risto, maybe like back in 2018, no, right? right immediately before you started PayHawk. Imagine you, you were able to give that young Risto one piece of business advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: I think I would say this is something I try to do, but I would have reminded myself back then again how, how critical and important it is. You need to have laser focus. And You need to be deliberate about every step and every action that you take. And never think that you're a big company. Think as a small company, think as a company that is focused and just doing absolutely the maximum of every feature, every marketing campaign, everything needs to tie together and don't spread yourselves too thin. You need to be extremely focused and, and, and and I think, the synergy and a real flywheel of a business starts by doing a lot of accumulation and pressure in one point before you're able to fully crack it. Uh, if you just poke here things and there and you spread yourself a team and you're thinking for too many things at the same time, that would be hard. If you're passionate and persistent and focused on one problem at a time and you really solve and crack this problem, and move to the next one and then you crack this one that's the efficient way don't try to do five ten things at the same time and i think that's a, a one advice that i received from a board member he said like you know the best ceos there's and the best founders when there is a problem in the business they go and focus on it and when once they solve it they don't have to go and look at this thing for the next two years Uh, If you are uh, uh, getting back to this problem in three months, four months, you haven't solved it properly. And that's why you need to remind yourself that um, for big problems, you need to. So the time you spend and the energy you spend on something should be based on how critical this thing is for the business. Um, And that's really, really important.
0: I love it. So, Risto, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Uh, I would say uh, the best people can find me on Twitter. I'm at Christo Christo Borisov, They can find me at LinkedIn. I'm at Borisov as well. I think those are the two best channels I use for uh, interaction. Uh, So feel free to ping me, reach out, and happy to chat.
0: Amazing. Well, Risto, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com